prayer, a river, and baptisms. Grab your Bible and let's talk. Welcome to the Bible Glitter and Glue podcast, where Bible study and thought-provoking conversation lead to creative teaching. Now, here are your hosts, David and Mary Nelson. Well, welcome to another episode of Bible Glitter and Glue. I'm Mary, and my husband David is sitting across from me. Hi, David. Hello. (laughs) Well, we're going to be in the book of Acts today. And continuing on in a journey, a missionary journey. Who's on this journey, David? Well, on this journey, there's Paul and Silas. They pick up Timothy and Lystra. They're in Troas. And in Troas, Luke joins them. So we know we have at least these people with Paul. Timothy and Silas and Luke. Well, and we read in the narrative, we, and so Luke is writing this, and that's why he says we, and he knows because he's there. He knows exactly what's happening. This is a shorter passage. It's in Acts chapter 16, verses 10 through 15. I think it's short enough. Maybe we could read this one today. Okay, I'll start out, and then you can carry on. Sounds good. Verse 10. After Paul had seen the vision, we immediately prepared to leave from Macedonia. We understood that God had called us to tell the good news to those people. We left Troas in a ship, and we sailed straight to the island of Samothrace. The next day, we sailed to Neapolis. Then we went by land to Philippi, the leading city in that part of Macedonia. It is also a Roman colony. We stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate to the river. There we thought we would find a special place for prayer. Some women had gathered there, so we sat down and talked with them. There was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Her job was selling purple cloth. She worshipped the true God. The Lord opened her mind to pay attention to what Paul was saying. She and all the people in her house were baptized. Then Lydia invited us to her home. She said, If you think I am truly a believer in the Lord, then come and stay in my house. And she persuaded us to stay with her. David, I have to say, this story comes alive in my mind when I'm reading it. Because as you know, but our listeners might not, I got to go to some of these places a number of years ago. I was a speaker on a tour group. I got to see Samothrace in the distance, the place where they stopped overnight on that journey. We stopped in Neapolis, which is now called Kavala, and we saw the port and You know, I just kept thinking about, oh, Paul landed here. Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy, they were right here where I'm looking. You know, that was so exciting. And and Neapolis is the port city that serves Philippi. So we also got to go to Philippi. In our tour, we went outside the city to the river that runs outside the city. Now, we don't know exactly where the story today took place on that river, but it would have been on that river. So for me, this seems so real. Sometimes we tell Bible stories like 
they're fairy tales almost. But this is a real thing in a real place with real people. That's so cool. I'm really glad you got to do that. And our story begins in verse 10. After Paul sees this vision and he shares the vision, it says we immediately prepared to leave. There was a sense of urgency to go. This was God calling them. And when God calls, you need to obey. You need to do what God says. And so they immediately prepared to leave for Macedonia. And when we say Macedonia, that's in the landmass that is Europe today. This is the first time the gospel message, at least the first time we read about the gospel message crossing over into Europe. This is significant. Very significant. And that's one of the things that make this story significant and Lydia significant too. But we'll talk about that when we get to it. As you mentioned, Mary, they spent the night in Samothrace and then they journeyed to Neapolis and they got off the ship and had to walk inland for about 13 kilometers or eight miles or so uh, to Philippi. So Philippi was not directly on the coast. It was inland a bit. We also read in verse 12 that Philippi was the leading city in that part of Macedonia. But Philippi had quite a history, didn't it? Yeah, it has a very interesting history. It gets its name from Philip II of Macedon. You might not recognize that name, but his son was Alexander the Great. So you probably recognize Alexander the Great. This is an old city. It goes back several hundred years. There was an important battle fought in 42 B.C. Rome was experiencing a civil war. Julius Caesar had been assassinated by Brutus and Cassius. And Augustus and Mark Anthony were after his assassins. There was an important battle fought. They defeated Brutus and Cassius. And after this, Augustus became Rome's first emperor. After this time, Rome began settling retired Roman soldiers in Philippi. And this continued for, for a long time. Rome did not want retired soldiers ending up in Rome. Rome was already getting overcrowded. It was hard to feed the population. So the last thing Rome wanted was a lot of retired Roman soldiers who were restless. They sent their soldiers to different places for retirement. Philippi was one of these places. In Paul's day, it had the status of a Roman colony. Even though it was in Greece, it was an outpost of Rome. The city followed Roman law, Roman customs. You would hear Greek, but also you would hear Latin being spoken in the city streets. Philippi was a very Roman place. Well, today, Philippi, I guess in a way, would be off the beaten path. It's not on a major highway or anything like that. But back then, there was a major road that went through Philippi that made it the place to go. And that was the Roman road. Yeah, the Roman road, the Via Ignatia. Uh, I knew there was another name for it, but I've been there, David. I got to stand on that road in Philippi. So... This was a place that people went. People went in and out of this place a lot. And as we said, there was a port nearby. There was a lot of trade. There were marketplaces in that city, and people liked to trade their goods. I'm guessing that's probably why Lydia was there. She had purple cloth that she wanted to sell, and perhaps that's why she's ended up in Philippi. Philippi would have been probably a good place to do business. Well, Paul and his company stayed several days 
And then it says in verse 13, on the Sabbath day, they go outside the city to the river. Now, why do they do that? There's no synagogue mentioned, and it was probably because there's no synagogue in Philippi. So that tells us there were either no Jews living there or just a small number of Jews living there. And the reason Paul goes outside the city gate to the river to pray, because it had become custom at this time when there was no synagogue in a town that the place of worship for those few Jews who might be there was by a river. So Paul knows to go looking for a place of worship by the river. Well, there were still no Jewish men, it seems, because here's a group of women who are praying. And you get the idea they're doing that on their own, which says a lot. In reading this, Lydia and her household, and she's a businesswoman, it seems like she managed all of these people in some way. Maybe these were her slaves, in some way connected to her. But Lydia and her household would go to the river and pray. So as Luke writes, the group comes across these women and they join them. In a small way, David, isn't that another barrier, a subtle thing that's being crossed now as the word of Jesus is spreading, going to this group of women? It wouldn't have been that long ago where Jewish men would have not joined that group of women like that. Yeah, Mary, you mentioned about a group of women at the river praying. One of these, and she's the only one that's given a name, is Lydia. I find Lydia fascinating Her name means beautiful or noble one. She comes from Thyatira. Now, Thyatira is in Asia Minor in the district of Lydia. So she's named after the district she comes from. And she's a seller of purple. Purple is a dye. And Thyatira was famous for dyeing cloth. There are several means of dyeing. And probably the most expensive, time-consuming would be dye that purple dye made from the murex shellfish or... Well, I was reading uh, sea snail. Okay. Mary, I know you're reading this, but how many sea snails does it take to... Oh, thousands. It takes thousands of those sea snails to produce dye because each one just has a little bit and they're all combined, boiled. There's a whole process. One source I read, it said thousands to make an ounce. Another 250,000 of those to make one tablespoon of dye. So that would have been a precious purple dye. Wow, I didn't realize that. So this was a really expensive way to make dye, but it wasn't the only method and only way to make purple dye. There were also plants that were used to to do the same thing. There was a local plant called the matter plant that produced a purple dye that they used to dye cloth. We're not for sure where Lydia's purple dye comes from, but it's one of probably these two sources. Yeah, and just just take a moment, David, to think about that. These were ancient times, and I don't know why, but sometimes we picture those times as black and white. Everything was just gray and dreary. They didn't have the modern things that we have today, but they, too, wanted to have nice colors. They appreciated that kind of thing. It was... Beautiful, 
but there were all sorts of connections to purple, meaning riches and royalty. Those colors carried a lot of meanings. Whatever method Lydia used, whoever she was selling to, get this picture of a woman who owned a business, who had people working for her, who was operating in a prosperous town and mixing with people who were buying materials that would help them in their status. So Lydia is, I think I agree with you, David, Lydia is a fascinating character. We don't know a lot about her, but we just get so much from those few verses. We do. And one of the fascinating things about Lydia, we're told that she worshiped the true God. She was probably a God-fearing Gentile, and there were quite a few of those around. They had turned their back on their pagan history, their pagan culture, and they were attracted to the true God, the one true God of the Jews, and worshipped him. And Lydia was probably one of these. So she already had a heart for God, to follow God, to be obedient to God. And when Paul comes around and he starts telling her the good news about King Jesus, it says that God opened her heart because that was her heart was already bent toward God. And she listened and she believed. It says in verse 15 that she and all the people in her house were baptized. That's an interesting thought on its own. She had a lot of influence, whether these people were just sitting listening at the same time and heard that same message or she shared it with them, or they trusted her and her judgment, and so that moved them to do this. Whatever it was, here's her whole household also turning to Jesus. That says another big thing about Lydia and her character. Right away, Lydia demonstrates her faith. And this is how the story ends in verse 15. She says, if you think I'm truly a believer in the Lord, come stay at my house. And so she persuaded Paul and his company to stay with her. She is practicing hospitality. She is demonstrating her solidarity with Paul, that she is truly a follower of of King Jesus. And I think there's even a subtle message there, which reveals the strength of this woman's character. She, in a way, maneuvers the situation. The hospitality is so important to her that it, she puts a, almost like a little bit of guilt on them. It's like, well, if you really think I'm a faithful person, if you really think that I'm a Christian now, you should come to my house. She really wanted to show them hospitality. And I kind of see a little businesswoman in her as she convinces them. It says she persuaded them. To come to her house. You know, Mary, this Lydia is a strong woman. And just think what God can do with strong women. And God does use strong women. David, when I teach this story to children, I often use the opportunity to talk about, it's maybe not the main point of this story, but it is a fact that these people were baptized. Lydia was baptized. Her whole household was baptized. In fact, As we read through Acts, every conversion story involves baptisms. I usually use this opportunity to talk a little bit about baptism and how important it is, how tied to the Christian faith baptism really is. Many people today understand baptism as simply a symbolic act, a public act demonstrating loyalty to Jesus. And it certainly is that, but it's much more than that. 
Other places in the New Testament connect baptism with the forgiveness of sins, or dying and rising with Jesus, or becoming part of God's people or the church. These are significant things that are connected with baptism. So it is a symbolic act, that's true, but it's more than that as well. I've got on my website some verses listed. If you'd like to look in the show notes, you can see those. I have Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, some from Acts 2, and then what Peter says when Peter talks about baptism in First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, might be something to look up because, you know, children are interested in that. They find that interesting. Well, I think adults can find that interesting as well. There's a lot to learn about baptism. In fact, David, you know, I said I was in Philippi, right by the river. They don't know the exact spot where Lydia was, but by the river in one spot, someone has built this stone structure that diverts water to the side, and people go there to be baptized, to reenact what Lydia did, because it's a meaningful thing to them. So that's interesting. We were talking about baptism. It just brought to mind that structure. So, David, when you're teaching adults, you're teaching about Lydia, about Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, and there's so many things you can talk about. But what kind of ways and methods would you use to help bring this story to life? Well, as has already been mentioned, I think you mentioned it, baptism is not the primary point or focus of this lesson. It's important, and it's important to note that the text does mention Lydia and her household being baptized. So you can ask the following questions. What body of water were you baptized in? And let the class answer that question. Was it a baptistry, a swimming pool, a lake, or a river? A second question. What are some memories you have of the place you were baptized And then I think you can include this third question to the class. Ask the class, who has experienced being baptized at the same time with other family members or with friends? And what was it like to you then? And what's it like now? So I think those can be very good discussion questions, and it helps us to think about another aspect of our baptism. What connects us with that story as well, doesn't it? Yes. Since we're on this, I have a second thing you might want to try, if it's workable, practical, or possible, is organize the class to study this lesson by a stream or a river or a lake or even a swimming pool, whatever works best, and spend time in prayer also, and then make the study more meaningful by sharing a meal together, practicing hospitality. And that captures some aspects of the story. So Mary... You've already mentioned a couple of things about children, what they might find interesting or fascinating. What are some other ways you can help the story come alive and be more meaningful to children? Well, because this is a shorter set of verses, for one thing, I think we could read this one. Even if you just read what happened at the river with Lydia and just took that portion of the scripture, good readers could read that out loud or you could read it out loud. So I think I'd do that with this one. Anytime I get a chance to do that, I like to. We have to deal with attention spans and things like that. So these longer passages can be very challenging to children. But here's one that's doable. You could read this straight out of the Bible. 
there are some things in there I think children could understand and remember. Just finding Philippi on a map would be good. You could even do a little study and see where the Roman road led and see how the Roman road led to these major cities. So you could learn a little bit about that for some more study. Of course, there's dye being used here. How did they make dye in ancient times? And we've talked about a couple. You might not can exactly duplicate that in class, but you could make natural dye in some way. Take some white, thin cotton cloth and then experiment with some different really colorful things that could produce dye. Maybe squish some berries and get the juice, add a little water and dip that cloth in it. Or beets, beetroot, you know, those even just in a a tin can that you get out of the grocery, you get that and take the juice from that and dip some white cloth in that and show how you can make those purple. So that's fun and memorable for the children. You might want to talk about baptism. I, like I said, I do. I, I do like to talk about this when I can, because this is an important facet of their future Christian life. So I give them opportunities to understand it. A very simple craft, if I can explain it in a podcast, is to make a small figure of a person, and in this case, a woman, and then mount that picture on a stick. So it's like a little puppet on a stick. You can have that picture, but then take a paper cup and cut a hole in the bottom and stick that puppet through the cup down to where the stick slips through the hole at the bottom of the cup. And so now you have a cup and a stick sticking out of the bottom, and you can push that stick up and pull it down, up and down, and it looks like that figure, that little puppet, is going down in the water in the cup and then up again and then down. So you can reenact a baptism. I hope that made sense. But if you look on my website on missionbibleclass.org, you'll see a picture of that, and you could try to duplicate that with children. That one's fun. But this is a very important story. Like we said, it's shorter, but it's so meaningful and so realistic in the mind's eye. You can just see these things happening. And of course, that's what we want to do when we teach people. We want them to be able to see this in their mind's eye and feel like they were there. So I hope that's what happens in your Bible class. And may God bless you as you speak into the lives of adults and children. Thank you for listening to the Bible Glitter and Glue podcast. Subscribe now to listen to new weekly episodes and visit missionbibleclass.org for more free resources to help you share God's word with children.